Hello, and welcome to the Family Histories podcast, the show for and about those of us who are sat quietly in libraries, archives, and spare rooms all around the world, tirelessly piecing together our collective social and family history. My name is Andrew Martin. I'm a family historian, and I'll be your host. In this episode, The Missionary, we'll be hearing about my guests' ancestors who left the UK to set up an orphanage in the Middle East, and we're trying to find a woman's parents in 19th century Michigan, USA. So, put down that birth certificate, grab a cuppa, and let's meet our guest. My guest today is an architectural historian by training, but she has jumped the fence into this wonderful world that we know as genealogy. Her research has taken her on a trail through time following relatives who have turned up in many different countries, including Scotland, the USA and Lebanon. So before she packs her bags and flies off somewhere else, I better introduce my guest, Kim Brangle. Hello, Kim. Welcome to the Family Histories podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. You're very welcome. Uh, as is customary with this show, we always like to find out what got you into researching family history. Well, I I would have to say that I I started out with a lot of moves in my own family. We we moved again and again and again. Oh. I was born in Germany during a period when my father was was working there. Um, we moved back to the States when I was tiny. We lived in Baltimore. We moved to the Boston area. We moved. It, it was it was a constant wow. for a variety of job-related reasons. My father passed away when I was very young. My mother remarried, yep. on and on. The hopping around um, People have lots of ways of reacting to hopping around. Mine mine was to dig in some roots. So that and the loss of my father, which made me want to know more about him. Okay. And a great storytelling grandmother. Okay. Uh, on my mother's side, who, who was full of stories of travels and dogs and more dogs and, <laughs> and family members. Um, which... And traveling with dogs. Yes. And, uh... <laughs> also that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So was she able to tell you lots of stories along with maybe provide some family documents that could help you on your kind of beginnings of looking at records and things? She didn't really. There were a few family photographs, but she had been uprooted quite a bit because um, I, I, you know, th this this is a long pattern in my family of okay. of people moving from from place to place and country to country, and she had lost a, a lot of the family photographs um, along the way, but those have come along. You know, the, those documents and photographs have have come along the way in my own searching. So, so what what kind of documents have kind of helped you to to research what's what's your favorite type of record well i i mean i love photographs first of all so so yeah you know, i'm 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 much more about wanting to visualize the 
the people and visualize the places. I love I love to travel to places when I can. Um, the document research documents. I'm fortunate enough to have some letters. Uh, there there's a set of letters that uh, have come down f from a pair of great grandparents who I'll be talking a bit about more later okay. but having you know having something in their own words and their own handwriting is precious i guess it kind of helps you to see their everyday life and and everything that they're facing uh in a kind of a more private context rather than just a, a straightforward record they're actually kind of putting their feelings across yeah yeah it, it definitely does my mother passed away recently and i and as i've been exploring some some treasures that I didn't know she had, even though she knew I was interested. Uh, <laughs> I I came across a couple of letters that she had written as a child, living in Lebanon, writing to an uncle in Pennsylvania, that when she was about eleven, that were just precious. Wow! Um, you know, it was a a real treasure. I bet, and I bet that has kind of fueled you to uh, research further and to find out maybe maybe to kind of find the records that may have been from the time that, that say, your grandmother might be writing about, for example. You'd be able to go and look in the records and, and maybe see where she's where she is at a particular time. That must have been a, a, a good motivator for getting you to research. Definitely, definitely. One of my earliest explorations of records was in, when I was in college and I had a summer where I was in Washington. And at 18, other people... <laughs> We're, we're not spending their Saturdays hold up the National Archives, but uh, it, it was, uh, yeah, and at that point, uh, yeah, that was the only access to census records. It, it, we're, we're talking 1970s. Um, and so, you know, my, my early plunge into genealogy was was long before the internet and having fun exploring the Library of Congress and the National Archives. Yeah. Um, and then there was a long gap when I wasn't free to travel to places to do research in the settings and there was no internet. And so, you know, I don't, I can imagine that a lot of people who are interested in genealogy who are of a certain age may have had the same experience that I did of, of, being able to come back to it okay. when suddenly things were at our fingertips sitting in our pajamas in our bedrooms. <laughs> um, it's, it's just like magic. <laughs> here, here we are, what, 25, 30 years into the internet and I'm still <laughs> just dazzled by, by the ease of finding things. It is very convenient to just log on to one of the, the big websites and uh, just browse around. But, you know, you're not going to find those uh, family letters in places like that. They're only going to go for the big record sets. So have you found any difficulties with tracing relatives who move around quite a lot? Definitely. And, you know, I, you know ha having read a bit about your background and that you, you have your ancestry is is conveniently located in your backyard yeah. um, for many generations. I, I'm envious <laughs> of, of the part of that that means that you can actually get to the places readily because with my with my people scattered so much, um, I, I I simply don't have the opportunity to 
to travel to do the research in person very often. And about six, seven years ago, there there was a a thing making the rounds of the internet. Okay. Called, I think it was my rainbow of places, but it was a chart that a genealogist developed that was color coded by birthplace of five generations of ancestors. And it was fun to see, look how colorful my tree is, or look, my tree is all the same color. And I ended up doing, doing one with birth and death locations, which was dazzlingly colorful because out of, I think there are if you go back to second great-grandparents, I think there are 31 ancestors, including yourself, and all but seven of mine had died at least 500 miles from where they were born. Wow. Uh, so there are very few places that I can kind of dig into. I mean, my grandmother's maternal side, my maternal grandmother's maternal side was in... Baltimore and Virginia for many generations. So that that's one sort of solid place. Okay. But mostly they're everywhere. <laughs> and that's that's got its fun part. I mean it really is you know for for somebody who likes to um bright shiny objects um I I you know there's always somewhere new to explore even in my internet research if not in person so. yeah i guess in person within the usa there are quite a lot of differences in the access to the records as well so that must add its own layer of challenges maybe maybe that's a little easier now that we have a lot of uh, things online but not everything's online so i guess you perhaps hit upon that quite early on yeah i i mean i honestly don't get to travel that much for my research because even though even though I'm in the same country yeah. a lot of my ancestors were in the midwestern united states i'm in new england yeah you know, this chunk of my grandmother's is in maryland i try to get down there every now and then but I, I, <laughs> so my my research habits are scattershot at times and sometimes I will make those trips. I mean, for example, I took a trip to Baltimore a few years ago, which was where you know, my grandmother and several generations in her family were from. And I made a point of looking at city directories and mapping out things and going and finding the house that my grandmother was born in and the art school she attended and the cathedral where her parents were married and okay. it was much more about visiting the, the places um than it was I, I i never set foot in any place that had any records i i yeah i had a brief amount of time um and it it was magical i mean one of the things that i found was that my grandparents first apartment after they were married um was across the street from the apartment that Granny's mother had moved into after being recently widowed. Now, if I hadn't been standing on the corner gang, okay, that's 1067 Utah Street, and that's 1076, and look, they're, you know, they can see each other's windows, I wouldn't have realized. So there's a lot to me to be said for just going and seeing it. With your blog being called Generations of Nomads, does this mean that maybe you're a, a frustrated 
traveller because you're not travelling around. <laughs> I am a frustrated traveller. There's no question. I, although the although the other part of that is having moved a lot as a child, I'm very content to have settled in one place for my entire married married life. Yeah. Um, it it there, there's. There's a lot to be said for that. But yes, I would love to be traveling more. <laughs> um, and there are definitely some, some genealogy trips in, in my planning stages. So you definitely have the travel bug. Always, always. Now, what you were saying about visiting places and looking at the, the houses and the apartments and also your background as an architectural historian, do you find that maybe you might end up doing, say, like a house history research project? I could definitely see doing that. I mean, I've been working on one of my own house, which is uh, only 100-ish years old, but I, I did start actually researching the family histories of the families that lived here before we did uh, and enjoyed that. Our house actually... Uh, I, I live in Salem, Massachusetts, and Salem had, like many cities, a horrific fire uh, in 1914 that destroyed a large portion of the city. Okay. And when we bought our 1915 house, our next door neighbor said, oh, well, your your house was the last house affected by the Salem fire. And in fact, the houses immediately beyond us are late 19th century. Okay. And turns out... It, it, there was a fire on on the same day. It wasn't the big fire, but it was on the same day. So it's been fun researching you know, the history of what stood on this site before as well. Any exciting previous occupants of your house? Not particularly, although I, I've been surprised to find that in a hundred years, my children were the only children who ever lived in this house. Oh, wow. Okay. Which seems kind of sad. Yeah. Um, it was. It was mostly... Owned by women, okay. which I thought was a, a little unusual. Um, there were three sisters, and then there was a couple, and then there were two sisters. Um, so, you know, I, that, but no, no, no exciting murders or or scandals or <laughs> great inventions or any of any of that in this house. Oh well, Met yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm hoping there won't be any murders in my house in the. Well, I was I was actually leaning towards the inventions <laughs> okay, <thank> actually. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, have you uh, ventured into the world of DNA testing at all? Yes, yes, and have had great fun with it. Um, and actually, one of one of the things that has been particularly interesting and is an area that I want to be working more on um, is that my Maryland, Virginia part of my family, um, many of them were slaveholders. Uh. And uh, working on doing more research relating to the people who were enslaved by members of my family has has always you know, been on my mind. Yeah. I have, in fact, found quite strong DNA connections with a number of descendants of enslaved people, but but there's a particularly large group that I match um, that it, it's pretty clear what branch of the family the connection is through, although it's been hard to document for sure who the father in this case was. But um, in the course of that, I've had 
contact with a couple of, of women who are, are part of this family group, um, one of whom I've become very dear friends with. And she and I sort of started out trying to piece it together, have really not been able to figure out how to find documentation of the paternity in this situation. But in the meantime, you know, we adore each other and have, you know, have progressed from an occasional email to regular phone calls to FaceTime and we're planning a visit. So that, that's been a lovely bonus of doing DNA testing is to, um, you know, make that connection. And hopefully, hopefully we can also figure out a little bit more. I've been learning from her, you know, about some of the challenges that she's faced with her own research. And, you know, she has a great desire to join the DAR and it is not able to provide the kind of documentation that they require. And we're trying to figure out how to make DNA be sufficient for that because it's very clear that it's right. It's just not. Yeah, you've got to have the supporting documentation exactly. for, for applying to that. Fingers crossed that you can unpick that. But it sounds like you've got a, a lovely friendship relationship. I hope so. Uh, with your with your relative. Yeah, cousin. <laughs> yeah, a new cousin. Yep. <laughs> uh, what ways do you share your research findings with relatives? Because I mean, obviously, you have a have a blog, but I know that for some people, family history is the most exciting thing to hear. And, you know, obviously both of us are in that camp, but then there are some very strange people who find it the most boring thing ever. So who won't be listening to this podcast, so you can say whatever you like. But uh, um. <laughs> Yes, they will. <laughs> they will listen. <laughs> good, good. Make them listen. Um, so what ways do you, do you find to be able to share your research with, with friends or relatives? Well, I try to spare my friends because mostly their eyes glaze over. Okay. <laughs> And, and they're friends because I <laughs> can't remember. Um, with a few exceptions, there are, there are some people who who actually are interested, and then some others who will humor me. Um, in terms of my family, I do forward links whenever I have a new blog post on a part of the family that relates to them, and it's. I don't necessarily think they're terribly interested. I try to make it as alive as possible. I, I mean, I I you know, as they're. I've been transcribing a set of letters from my great-grandmother in Lebanon, yeah. and as something comes up that is that relates to, to some of my cousins, I'll forward a snippet of a letter along. And there have been enough wonderful serendipitous connections through my blog of people contacting me who've seen some of my posts um, that... Family photos were unearthed that way. I, I just recently met with a woman in Pennsylvania who had an album of photographs of, you know, we're, we're connected through great uncle and aunt who married each other. We're not blood relatives, um, but she inherited a fo- family photo album of her great aunts that had my grandfather and his brothers and lots of, lots of family members in it. Uh, and when those things come up, I, I share them with the family and hope they'll be excited. Not perhaps as excited as I am. Maybe one day they will be. We have a passionately dog-loving family. And I, I have tried to collect stories of family dogs. Okay. Um, and actually did one of my blog posts on on generations of dogs in the family. And uh, that, that one seemed to 
appeal to some of the relatives. Was there a common name that uh, featured through the different dogs? Oh, different names. They all had different names. There was Tess and Pronto and um, Boswell. Okay. Um, Boswell was my basset hound, actually. Um, but no, we, we, they, I don't think there were any repetitions that I remember. Which it would be great in genealogy if that was the case as well, because... Uh, <laughs> get fed up with seeing John, whatever the person's surname is. It's uh, very repetitive. It is. A heroic grandmother, a villainous great uncle, or a ghostly great aunt. There are always stories to be told when you research your family tree. With that in mind, it's now time for my guest to tell us about one of their most fascinatingly good bad or just plain ugly relatives. So, Kim, who are you going to introduce us to? I would like to tell a little bit about my very, very dear great-grandfather, Daniel Oliver, and his wife, Emily Wright Oliver. Okay. And Daniel was born in Caithness, Scotland, in the far northeastern tippy corner of Scotland, in 1870, to a family of agricultural laborers. They lived in modest circumstances. He was the youngest of three sons and was extraordinary. All I can say is he he was much, much beloved and has gone down as a very important figure in my family. So Daniel, as best I know, was educated until the age of about 15 or 16 in Thurso. And then... By the age of 18 or 19, he left Scotland. I have no idea what prompted him to go or how he left, but the next thing we know is that he was in Morocco (laughs) and learning Arabic. (laughs) This is quite a change. (laughs) Yeah. And his... He told his story many times, and his story was told many times before, during, I mean, during and after his life. And I've never found any explanation of why or how he left Scotland. So, what year would it have been that he left Scotland, roughly? About 1889. Okay, I don't know if there is a historical significance to why he would leave Scotland whether there was something drawing him away at that particular point in history or pushing him away at that point in history. I do know that his parents and brothers left Caithness a couple of years later and moved to Edinburgh okay. and were were in South Leith working as dock workers. Um, so they left agricultural life and went to the city. Okay, He left before them. So... I I just I don't know I don't know how that came to be and that's the one of the mysteries I would love to solve someday but he was in Morocco and then traveled to a part of Syria that is now Lebanon was in a village called Brumana where there was a Quaker school okay he got he learned went to Beirut to study Arabic and then taught as a Quaker missionary, although he didn't come from a Quaker family. Quakerism was not a thing in Caithness, and his family 
yeah, we're Church of Scotland as far as I know. He taught at a variety of mission schools in and around the mountains outside of Beirut for several years and then was settled at a school, this Bramana High School, which was a Quaker high school where he met Emily Wright, who was her own lovely story. Emily was born in 1865 in Yorkshire. She was born at the Ackworth School, which was a Quaker school that her father was the bookkeeper at and her mother had been a teacher. Um, So I've always imagined this little workplace romance. Um, (laughs) And both of her parents came from many, many generations of Quakers. Both of them had several generations of connections to the Ackworth School. And Emily, with the exception of a few years when her parents left the school when she was a small child, she returned as a student when she was eight, and she never left the school. And she worked, She stayed as a student, as an apprentice teacher, and then as a teacher until she was in her early 20s. And then in the meantime, her father became a Quaker missionary. I'm not sure what his wife was doing while he was traveling the world. But Emily ended up traveling with her father in 1890 at age 25. And she went to the high school at Brumana while her father was on his way to go do mission things in Australia and New Zealand. So here she is, plunked from Yorkshire to Brumana. I, you know, I, I have tremendous admiration for her just picking up and leaving yeah. and meets this Scottish guy <laughs> <laughs> who was an imposing figure. Um, there are lots of photographs of both of them that have survived, and uh, he, he was a force of nature, strong personality. So they... They were there at the school in Bramana. They start, they got married in 1895, had three boys and a baby girl who died in infancy. My grandfather was the middle of their three sons. And in 1915, as World War One is starting and Syria is being invaded by the Turks, Conditions there were horrific, and they started an orphanage in a village called Rossel Metten, which is about 45 minutes currently, um, 45 minutes out of, outside of Beirut in the mountains, okay. and they ended up in a big 18th century castle wow. um, that has a bell tower, and, a, and a, it's quite exotic. Um, and, and that became their orphanage and school. And it, it, it they grew into that. But initially, in 1915, there were children being orphaned by the war and by famine. There, my great-grandfather describes literally a plague of locusts uh, that destroyed all of the wheat in the region, and people were starving to death. It, it was horrible. So this school and orphanage grew and thrived and Daniel and Emily made that their life's work. They they were there for 60 years. Okay. They both died in their 
ripe old age in the early 1950s, in their 80s. And during that time, Daniel was sort of the British Quaker representative to the region and was, in addition to taking care of hundreds and hundreds of children over the decades, was very committed to trying to make peace between the Arabs and the Jews. As the Palestinian question started to develop early in his years there, uh, he, uh, you know, I've read so many of his writings, and he, he was so passionate about a loving message. You know, a you know people can people can work this out if they will just open their hearts. Um, and I I so admire the work that both of them did. I think one one can easily think of missionaries as going and trying to force their belief system on other people, and that was so not what their effort was about. They were passionate about providing basic needs for people and providing educations for initially boys. They've ended up becoming co-educational, which you know seemed like. I guess that was not unusual for Quakers to have co-education, but um, in that region, it was certainly an unusual thing to have boys and girls being educated together. I mean, that's certainly a big change from being in Scotland and being in Yorkshire to go all the way over there and set this up. I wouldn't have naturally have put Quakerism and Lebanon together because I think currently it's mostly the population would be practicing Islam and they're Obviously, some Christianity there as well. But at, at that time, I wouldn't necessarily have thought that Quakerism might get a happy reception when it turned up. I've never had the feeling that they were converting anybody. Okay. I I don't, I, I mean, I don't think, I genuinely don't think that was part of their intention. And there were a lot of Christians. Okay. Um, there, you know, their, their region, there, there were Christians and Druze, which is a complicated religion that has bits of Islam and bits of Christianity and um and th- there there was often conflict between the the Christian and Druze populations there which they worked very very hard to um to ease okay there are a couple of things i would love to share one my great grandfather was affectionately known to his grandchildren as badaddy um, so I kind of slip into referring to him as Badaddy, even though, unfortunately, I never met him. He died only a few years before I was born. But okay. in spite of being, for the vast majority of his life, in the mountains of Lebanon, he was a proud Highlander. And um, and he traveled quite a bit because there was a lot of fundraising required in keeping, in sustaining the school. Um, so he was in London in... I think it would have been in the late 30s. And there's a letter from my great-grandmother, his wife, to her eldest son, who was at that point living in Philadelphia. Sure. And she writes, Has Daddy told you that he invested in a Highland suit when he was in London? (laughs) Kilt, sparring, tweed jacket and cap for day wear, and handsome black jacket with silver buttons for evening wear over the same kilt of Henderson Tartan. 
He really looks stunning and talks of having his photo taken in it, which he did and which is cherished. We have, everybody in the family has a copy of that photo. Um, It gives him no end of pleasure, and he has even worn it when he went to Beirut and called at the consulate and also visited the Maronite patriarch at the same time. Meanwhile, Peter, my uncle, who was then age eight, was thrilled to see it and probably pictures himself wearing it someday. As Badaddy has told him, the suits last many years and often descend from father to son and last a long time, if not in constant wear. Well, the suit is now in the possession of Badaddy's great-great-grandson, my cousin's son. (laughs) And has been worn at many a family wedding by others in the family so oh wow excellent i was painting a picture of him as you were describing this suit and i was thinking wow he must have he must have looked very smart and very proud and then you were saying that he was turning up in all these different places dressed as that so he must have uh, i love the image yeah (laughs) why not right But one of the things that has been really a joy in in doing my blog and in in working on his and their story is that they touched so many people, and I hear from those people. People have found my blog and reached out to me, and I've heard from former students. I've heard from people who grew up in the community who still think of him as this incredibly cherished, beloved figure. One of the quirkiest ones was that I got a message on Facebook from an Englishman who lives in Israel who said, I found a letter in a beat-up old suitcase in Haifa that was written by Daniel Oliver. Can I send it to you? And it, (laughs) it, it, he, he was foraging for objects to make art with and picked up this ratty old suitcase and there was a letter from Daniel to somebody who had written him responding to his opinion about the political situation in the Middle East Um, and Daniel was writing his usual message of peace and cooperation and the Jews and the Arabs have got to work it out and and um, and this man whose name is Paul Moore sent it to me and told me his own story, which was that he is a musician who is married to an Israeli woman, has been living in Israel for many years. And he and his wife started a program called Ukuleles for Peace, um, where they go into... That sounds like an oxymoron to me. (laughs) They go into schools in Israel and work teaching ukulele and singing songs with Arab children and Jewish students. Sounds fun, though. And then they get them to perform together and they travel and perform. And so this is, the letter ended up in the hands of somebody whose recent life work had been peacemaking through children. It just, I still get chills thinking about about that having happened. Yeah, that's like a wonderful coincidence. I love coincidences. They, they are, <laughs> and I and I think in genealogy they're they're the source of some of the most wonderful wonderful discoveries and and uh, 
special topics, special finds. You said that he learnt Arabic. How's your Arabic? Have you had to learn any Arabic when you're researching, or I have no Arabic whatsoever. Okay. My daughter did study Arabic when she was in college, just because she was very close to my mother, um, who had grown up there. I mean, my, okay. my you know that my mother's generation was there also, um, and. Daughter Abby studied three or four years of Arabic in college, has not had occasion to use it, but did have the opportunity to go to Beirut and was visited with family friends, a man who had been a student oh, at wow. the orphanage, who's, who at that point was in his late 80s, um, but arranged for somebody to take her up to Roslamet where she got to see the school. And there's a family cemetery there where my great-grandparents and several other family members and several of the family dogs are buried. Um, <laughs> apparently, that's a bit of a scandal in the village. They, they just do not understand why those crazy Olivers needed to bury their dogs near them. Well, I guess they were, they were part of the family, so uh, I, can, I can understand why they do that. And I hope that your daughter took lots of pictures as well. She did. She did. It's been such a joy to continue to feel connected uh, to that part of the family. Well, thank you, Kim, for sharing the story of Daniel and Emily. But I think it's now time for you to face the brick wall. Oh, brick walls. Those irritating research dead ends that can last for hours, days, even years, thanks to lost mistranscribed or just never kept records. So it's now time for my guests to tell us about one of their brick walls in a hope that one of you, dear listeners, might just be able to offer a clue or research idea that could turn that brick wall to dust. Okay, Kim, what have you got for us? I have my second great-grandmother, Julia Etta Harrington Stevenson. Okay. And Julia Etta has been elusive for years. I, I'm beating my head on that wall. I cannot find her parents. She was born in 1841. She was born, I believe, in Michigan, but there are records that I've not found a birth certificate. I have not found a census record until her marriage. Her marriage record actually says she was born in Ohio, but enough other records say Michigan that I think I can ignore the marriage certificate. Nobody gives her parents' names on any records. There are many family trees, which I don't actually believe, that list her father as a Thomas Harrington and her mother as a Sally Randall. Okay. To back up, Julia Etta was born in October of 1841, which I have determined based on her death certificate. She died in 1879, and it says how many months and days old she was in addition to years. And 1841 does seem to fit with her age in all of the, the census records. Okay. She, she lived in Michigan. She married 
William Stevenson, who was a shoemaker who had been born in Ontario, he had moved to, to Michigan and then they moved back to Ontario briefly okay. and then returned to Michigan and she died very young. She had a stroke. I found a newspaper article um, describing her being at church on Sunday and suddenly being overcome and then she died about a month later. The part that has always tickled me um, is that I have a massive amount of DNA connection to people who have to be related to Julia Etta because they don't fit anywhere else in my tree. And there is a clump of them who are all descended from the same Mormon pioneer couple okay. who I can't connect to Julietta in time, place, or name, um, but but they're ma they're close-ish matches. I mean, close-ish, like up to fifty centimorgans, kind of, you know, third, fourth cousin-ish. Okay. Which would put them at, at about the right generation connection to to be descended from parents of Julia Etta. Hmm. And I've built I've built their tree out connecting 40 or 50 people to each other. Yeah. Okay. But I can't make them connect. I've got a couple of people who do connect to the Thomas Harrington who's supposed to be her father but doesn't seem like he is. <laughs> he but only a couple, but somebody and then there's another whole clump. So the, so the the Mormon clump were started in New York and then migrated across the country with stops in Indiana and Iowa before they ended up in Utah. And there were, I mean, this was early Mormon of the polygamous variety. So there were five wives and okay. multiple children. Um, which is another reason why there are so many descendants there who I, who I match. I don't know how. And the family names in that group are Hall and Bybee or Bibby, B-Y-B-E-E. -E. They were sort of Northeastern people to start, Northeastern, you know, New Englandish area. And then there's another group of DNA matches who seem to connect to those people but aren't the Mormon group and their surnames are Church and Blanchard and they're from Rhode Island in the late 19th century Right. Okay. but I'm puzzled and frustrated. Yeah it sounds like you've got a lot of DNA matches which are tantalizing but there is a gap in them and that's the, that's the bit you need to be able to connect to them which is very frustrating. And I can't figure out what kind of documentary sources I can find. I I have not been able to find a birth certificate. The Thomas Harrington who's in everybody else's trees has a daughter Juliet in the 1860 census who is completely the wrong age by 8 years or so. Right. Okay. So I'm stymied. So your kind of first definite record for Julieta is what, a census or a marriage? It's the marriage in 1867. Okay, so she'd be kind of 26. Yep. And, but to back up, there is a census in 1850 
that does list a Juliet Harrington in Kalamazoo County, Michigan, who is the right age, who is age eight, who is living in a household, a farm household of Chansey and Mary Dean, who have two teenage children, and this Juliet has a sister, Hester. Well, I've researched the Deans, and I've researched Hester, and first of all, I don't know what Hester and Juliet Harrington, whoever they were, were doing in the Dean's house, and secondly, I can't I can't find any connection. You know, I thought maybe this was an aunt, maybe somebody had died, yeah. and they were sent to live with relatives. I can't make that connection. Well, I wonder whether they maybe not sent to relatives. Uh, maybe the parents did die and they've ended up in this family's house because maybe they were part of the same church community. And maybe that's the, the, the Mormon community and they kind of took those two children in, Julieta and Hester. And so they were looking after them um, as part of the, the the wider community, which would then maybe somehow link it back into the, the the Mormon part that you found for your DNA matches. But a complete guess. <laughs> but I haven't found anything to suggest that there are any Harringtons who were connected with the Mormon group. It's a puzzle. Yeah, this does sound like a, <laughs> does sound like a puzzle. So. What's the best way for the listeners to contact you if they think they have a, a research idea or a clue that can help put a crack in this wall or maybe bring it bring it tumbling down? That would be wonderful. Um, there's a contact page on my blog, which is generationsofnomads.com. Okay. And I would welcome anybody with any thoughts on Harrington's or Harrington with an H-E is a variation on the spelling and it's ton uh, ends in ton t-o-n rather than d-o-n right yeah of course the listeners can head over to familyhistoriespodcast.com where they can read this episode's show notes or they can send us an email at hello at familyhistoriespodcast.com and we'll pass it straight along to kim now, I think I can hear those listeners going off to forage for clues. So while they do that, I think I might just be able to help solve this for you. But you're going to need to follow me through to the garage. All right. Here we are. Wow, what's all this stuff? This highly scientifically calibrated technical stuff, as you put it, is all part of my secret time machine. And this is my 19th century assistant, Shandor Paterfi. Hello. A time machine? Yeah. How is it powered? What? Oh, well, the electricity bills are terrifying enough these days. Plus, I did once cause a blackout across the entire south of England. So it's mostly wind, solar, and a bit of old vegetable oil now. That's very green. Well, I thought I would try and do my bit. Oh, and this part is powered by potato. Potato? Yes, I, I found some bits of potato in an old sargaloo in a bin in the park. Ew. Well, I gave them a bit of a wipe first. They work a treat. Anyway, I thought that you might like to take a trip back in time to try to solve your brick wall for yourself. Well, if this really works, that would be great. Excellent. Well, if you just take a seat over there. Yeah. Now, what was that date and place again? It's their wedding on December 24th of 1867 in Decatur, Michigan. Decatur, Michigan. Nice. And let's just adjust this. 
What's that noise? I didn't hear anything. Right, Kim. You need to keep this temporal beacon with you at all times. Just tap that big button on the top when you're ready to come home. Okay, got it. Here we go. Kim Brengle. Thank you, goodbye, and good luck. How did we do? Almost spot on. How almost? Budapest in Hungary. Hmm, might need to upgrade the potatoes. The Family Histories podcast was presented and produced by me, Andrew Martin. My guest was the wonderful Kim Brengel with John Spike as Shandor Paterfi. If you've enjoyed this episode, then hit subscribe to get the next one and follow us on social media. Thank you. Approximately no family historians were harmed in the making of this podcast.